Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knackstead once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Chris Miller. Dr. Miller is the director of Penn Dermatology Oncology Center, and he's an associate professor of dermatology at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Thomas. I um, don't often get the privilege to chat with somebody who's really published a uh, significant amount of articles in what's really a short period of time. And I tell you that today because rather than just focus on one article, I want to discuss with you uh, and for our readers two of the articles that you've published um, in late 2018. And they have both been um, in the JAD. And they are EPUB ahead of print, so our listeners may not have actually come across them yet in the print journal. The first one's titled, Melanomas of the Head and Neck Have High Local Recurrence Risk Features and Require Tissue Rearranging Reconstruction More Commonly Than BCC and SCC, a Comparison of Indications for Microscopic Margin Control Prior to Reconstruction in 13,664 Tumors. And then the second one is titled, The Rule of Tens Versus the Rule of Twos. High complication rates after conventional excision with post-operative margin assessment of specialty site versus trunk and proximal extremity melanomas. So uh, those were both um, very comprehensive titles. So tell us a little bit about the projects and what prompted you to initiate these studies. Both projects have a similar goal, which is to try to develop indications for margin control before reconstruction of specialty site melanomas. Current guidelines do not specify indications for either Mohs surgery or staged excision of melanomas, but these techniques are entrenched in many regions throughout the country. At many academic centers, we're treating specialty site melanomas. Those are melanomas on the head and neck, the hands and feet, or the genitalia with margin control surgery prior to reconstruction. But nevertheless, the guidelines do not specify when we should use those techniques. So there's a lot of variation across the country, not just in when we use these techniques, but how we employ the techniques. What are the technical differences among the regional centers? I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the first points I want to discuss with you today actually references back to uh, 2015 when you wrote your paper on MART immunostaining in Mohs surgery. So do you mind just giving our listeners a brief overview of how Mohs is done at the University of Pennsylvania as it relates to these two projects? And then certainly anybody else who's interested, I direct you to the JAD article from May of 2015. So how are you doing Mohs, Chris? The article from the JAD in 2015 was intended not just to add to the literature another cohort of 
specialty site melanomas treated with Mohs surgery and a very low local recurrence rate. It was also to detail the technique of the surgery. That's important too because of how much variation there is across the country. One important part of our technique is that we view Mohs for melanoma as a margin control surgery. The goal is to make sure the cancer is out before reconstruction. A subsidiary goal is to spare tissue. Tissue sparing comes because when we identify subclinical spread, we can target our excision precisely for that area. But in our technique, we start with margins that are already generous. For melanoma in situ, our starting margin is five to six millimeters. For a T1B or greater melanoma, our starting margin is a centimeter. And for a T1A melanoma with no other high-risk features, those are the ones that we have a smaller margin than is recommended for the guidelines. If we treat a 0.3 millimeter melanoma at Penn, we start with a five to six millimeter margin, not a one centimeter margin. We believe it's important to shift the focus on Mohs or staged excision for melanoma from tissue sparing to confirmation of complete excision prior to reconstruction. Right. And that's, I think, always not a misperception, but I do think that there are two related but very unique tenets to Mohs for any high-risk tumor. And the one is the tissue sparing, but arguably that always almost takes a backseat to the comprehensive margin assessment that we're trying to accomplish. And I completely agree with you that in many of these more high-risk tumors, we're still using the published guidelines but on top of that, we're doing a comprehensive margin assessment, which is where we get our very good recurrence rate numbers from. Another important part of the technique from the JAD paper in 2015 is the way we handle the debulking excision. We evaluate the debulking excision with both frozen, then paraffin section pathology in 100% of the cases. It's very important that in every Mohs case or staged excision case for melanoma, that the debulking excision is sent for paraffin sections because 10% of specialty site melanomas will contain residual tumor with a deeper Breslow depth than the preoperative biopsies. So it's very important that anybody who's doing Mohs surgery or staged excision for melanomas does not discard the debulking excision. Got it. And that's, um, that, that 10% number is a great segue into your rule of 10 versus rule of twos um, manuscript. And so just for our readers, really there we're comparing specialty site melanomas to uh, trunk and proximal extremity melanomas. And what you and your group have found is that there are some generalizations that can be made and simply summarized as the rule of tens versus the rule of twos. So for those who haven't read the paper, will you just outline what, what you found there? Sure. There are four complications that you can have from a local surgery with melanoma. Upstaging of the tumor, that means that the preoperative diagnostic biopsy did not have the deepest Breslow depth of the tumor. The second complication is positive margins. Third complication is local recurrence. And the fourth complication would be reconstruction particularly a tissue rearranging reconstruction with a flap or a graft prior to complete excision of the tumor. 
those are the four complications that can happen with any surgery for melanoma. But with wide local excision, it's important to identify which melanomas are more likely to have those complications and which ones aren't. Because Mohs surgery or staged excision aren't necessary when wide local excision is successful. They're necessary when wide local excision has complications. And the rule of tens versus the rule of twos summarizes the complication rates of specialty site melanomas. Those are melanomas on the head and neck, the hands and feet, the genitalia, or the pretibial leg, compared to melanomas on the trunk and proximal extremities. Melanomas on the trunk and proximal extremities rarely have complications from wide local excision. The complication rate is about 2% for upstaging positive margins or local recurrence. Wide local excision is successful in 98% of trunk and proximal extremity melanomas. But the complication rate is much higher for melanomas on specialty sites. Complication rate jumps to 10% or described by the rule of tens. Specialty site melanomas treated with wide local excision have a 10% chance of upstaging, a 10% chance of positive margins, and a 10% chance of local recurrence. And they are 10 times more likely, that's the last rule of tens, to require a reconstruction with a flap or a graft compared to melanomas on the trunk and proximal extremities. And those things would then arguably make those reasonable criteria for a more high-risk behavior melanoma and possibly in future guidelines hopefully justify the use of Mohs or a staged excision technique. Chris, one of the things I found interesting about the paper, and uh, there may not be an answer for this, but one thing that caught my attention was that there's actually a difference in the recurrence rates in specialty sites between slow Mohs and true Mohs with immunostains. Is that just a sampling bias, or do you think there's a legitimate difference that, that we don't know of? I think that what's important is to realize the details of the surgical techniques. We are drafting a paper that we did of a systematic review looking at local recurrence rates for melanomas on the head and neck based on the surgical technique that was used. And in that systematic review, which we hope to submit for publication shortly, we found that Mohs surgery with immunostains had a local recurrence rate of 0.99%, just under 1%. But the rate of recurrence was about 2.5% for staged excisions. Those are techniques that use more comprehensive margin evaluation compared to conventional wide local excision with evaluation of pathology using paraffin embedded sections, not frozen sections. And I believe that if we drill down deeper into explaining why staged excision techniques have a slightly higher rate of local recurrence compared to Mohs, is that there's wide variation in those techniques, first of all, and in many of those variations, there is not comprehensive evaluation of the microscopic surgical margin. 
there's often sampling of most of it, but not all of it. And the second challenge with staged excision techniques that may contribute to that slightly higher local recurrence rate is that it requires coordination of usually a dermatologic surgeon doing the excision and determining how to gross the tissue and a pathology laboratory that doesn't normally process tissue that way. So the quality of the sections may not be as good because the techs who are cutting it aren't trained to get 100% of the epidermis and dermis on every slide. So I suspect that there's a higher rate of sampling error because the sections are not complete. I think it's fascinating that you all have not only identified this, what is ultimately a, a twofold higher recurrence rate with slow-mos, we should stop and appreciate the fact that both of those techniques are still providing a dramatic benefit over a conventional wide local excision. But it is uh, a good point that you make about the frequency with which our colleagues in dermatopathology, but more importantly, their technicians embed and process such tissue compared to your most uh, histotechnicians that do it on a daily or weekly basis. So it certainly makes me reflect on my own practices and hopefully it'll uh, kick off some thought in some of our listeners as well. Thomas, can I make uh, one point that's really important? Absolutely. We, we know from our experience at Penn how many checks and balances we have in place to make sure that we don't make errors with our Mohs surgery and immunostaining technique for our melanomas. Those checks and balances with our close relationship with our dermatopathologists and our expert histotech team are not easy to duplicate. We know that. And so it is important to make sure that uh, we're clear in our position that we advocate margin control prior to reconstruction with either Mohs surgery and immunostains or staged excision techniques. Both are considerably more effective than wide local excision for specialty site melanomas. And each of them is going to improve patient outcomes. They each have their own logistical challenges, and each center has to do what's best uh, based on the personnel and the resources. Very good point. I, uh, I completely agree with you. Now, the second paper that you have published is the one where you're comparing keratinocyte carcinoma, so basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma, to melanoma. And um, I like to think that the essence of that paper is uh, if they have it, why don't we have it? Because you're basically using the very reasonable justifications in the guidelines for keratinocyte carcinomas when it comes to um, subclinical spread, need for larger reconstructions, and preoperative size that were, justified, uh, were used to justify most surgery in basal cell and squamous cell, and you're sort of applying them, which is very intuitive, to the melanoma cohort. Um, was there any particular instance that, that triggered that, or how did you decide to really tackle the same question from two standpoints? First, as a large retrospective series of um, 13,000 tumors, and at the same time as a very comprehensive literature review. Well, you're right that the essence of the paper comparing head and neck melanomas to basal cell and squamous cell cancers on the head and neck is that there's a big disparity in the way that we've written the guidelines 
for those two categories of tumors. For the keratinocytic cancers, basal cell and squamous cell cancer, we have very clear indications for margin control with both modes or staged excision based on which tumors are most likely to have local recurrence or incomplete excision from wide local excision. But in the melanoma guidelines, there's no analogous segregation of tumors into high and low risk categories. And that creates a lot of confusion among patients, practitioners, and certainly surgical colleagues outside of dermatologic surgery. Therefore, since Mohs surgery or staged excision techniques are already entrenched at academic centers and many private practices across the country, they're not going away. So we must clarify when to use those techniques and make sure that we use them responsibly. We do not advocate using Mohs surgery or staged excision for melanomas that are treated effectively already with wide local excision. We advocate the use of those techniques for the melanomas that are most likely to have complications from wide local excision. And if you apply the typical clinical pathologic indications that we use for basal cell and squamous cell cancer to decide when margin control would be helpful, melanoma trumps every one of those criterion. Every criterion for uh, melanoma, they're bigger, they're more likely to have subclinical spread, they're more likely to require a tissue rearranging flap or a graft compared to basal cell and squamous cell cancer. So in fact, the need for margin control, you could argue based on those criteria is more important for melanomas on the head and neck compared to basal cell and squamous cell cancer. Melanomas are more likely to have complications after wide local excision of head and neck lesions, possibly even than basal cell and squamous cell cancer. One of the um, things that you identified was that melanoma has a higher odds ratio of needing a complex reconstruction or tissue rearrangement. And you just mentioned that again. One of the things that I was finding very interesting is that that is maintained when compared to BCC, SCC, even when you correct for things like tumor size, subclinical spread, or the number of Mohs layers required, and the exact anatomic location. Do you have a sense of why you find your group having to utilize more complex tissue rearrangement when at least those three factors are seemingly corrected for? Well, the preoperative tumor size and the postoperative defect are the primary determinants of whether a tissue rearranging flap or graft will be necessary. Mm -hmm. Now, the preoperative size of melanomas on the head and neck on average is larger than the preoperative size of basal cell and squamous cell cancers. That may be because they're detected later. It might be because their radio growth pattern is uh, less obvious to clinicians than the often papular component of a basal cell or squamous cell cancer. But then remember our margins that we use for melanomas at Penn are larger than on average we would use for a basal cell or squamous cell cancer. Our minimum starting margin for MIS or a T1A melanoma 
is five to six millimeters. And for a T1B or greater melanoma, we're starting with a centimeter. So automatically, you're getting a bigger defect than you would if you're taking a two to three millimeter margin around a basal cell or a squamous cell cancer. That, that's a great point. Chris, when you're preparing one of these, do you judge the initial size clinically or do you find a Woods lamp helpful when you're doing Mohs anyway? Or does a Woods lamp not find a lot of incorporation into your Mohs? Well, that question leads into a very important point too for anybody who's considering do Mohs surgery for melanoma. The clinical pathologic correlation is so powerful to train your eye to what is a melanoma versus what is a mimicker of melanoma, like a lentigo or a pigmented actinic keratosis or a pigmented squamous cell in situ. And so the Mohs surgeon has a distinct advantage of going from the clinic to the microscope over and over and over again as a process to hone their diagnostic acumen. But we've abandoned the Woods lamp, and that was based on the fact that when we mapped the D-bulk, we realized that we were overestimating the clinical size of the melanoma when we used the Woods lamp. We were more precise, more accurate when we used our two and a half loop magnification with bright surgical lights to determine what the clinical margin was. Fascinating. The, the one other sort of at the other end of your procedural spectrum Knowing what I've just read about your practice and sort of realizing that our readers can reference back to the manuscripts, in your practice, when you encounter one of these melanomas that is upstaged, when and how does that conversation with a surgical oncologist for lymph node sampling happen? And what's been the reception on their end of having such a strong dermatology presence in uh, melanoma surgery? Well, at Penn, we've been so fortunate to work so closely with all of our surgical subspecialists. Those include our surgical oncologists who do the sentinel lymph node biopsies for our trunk and extremity melanomas, and our head and neck surgeons who do the sentinel lymph node biopsies for our head and neck melanomas. They understand that there is a 10% rate of upstaging. Uh, when you excise a partially biopsied melanoma on specialty sites. In our cohort from our original study, our rate of upstaging was 5.5%. That's lower than the historical average, possibly because we're more aggressive in doing broader preoperative biopsies to get accurate staging before we initiate the surgery. But still, you're going to have melanomas that upstage. You think it's a melanoma in situ, but it's an invasive melanoma. You think it's a T1A melanoma, but it's T1B or greater. And you're going to have to have close relationships with your surgical oncologists and your head and neck surgeons to do a sentinel lymph node biopsy for those patients who desire it. In our process, when we have a patient who upstages, we detect that on the day of surgery the day of Mohs surgery, prior to reconstruction, because we look through bread loaf sections of the debulking excision on the day of surgery, and we're 99% plus accurate in our Breslow depth assessment when we look at it with frozen sections. So we delay the reconstruction for patients who reach T1B or greater status, 
the patient goes for the sentinel lymph node biopsy, and then they return to have the reconstruction done subsequently. Now, it is possible that a wide excision still disrupts the accuracy of the sentinel lymph node biopsies because the points of injections will be broader than they would have been if the tumor had been intact prior to surgery. But that challenge, that problem, is not unique to Mohs surgery or staged excision. Anybody who does surgery on specialty site melanomas will encounter that 10% rate of upstaging. And at least with Mohs surgery and staged excision, you can detect that upstaging prior to the reconstruction. So your sentinel lymph node biopsy has the greatest likelihood of being accurate compared to finding out that you've upstaged after you've already reconstructed the wound. Interesting. I don't want to put you on the spot here. This is truly a question that's just coming out of this great conversation that we're having. Do you know if anybody has looked at comparing cohorts who had Mohs surgery with sentinel node versus conventional surgery with sentinel node and compared the differences in true positive, uh, false negative rates for, for the sentinel lymph node biopsy? Has that been done? Do you know? Thomas, you're presaging our <laughs> next publications. This is the second one that you've asked about. Um, we've already collected those data. So we have a cohort of over 600 patients that have had invasive melanomas, and we're evaluating our compliance rate with NCCN guidelines and the accuracy of the sentinel lymph node biopsies. So I'll save those data until I have them uh, more accurate, but that's a publication we hope to submit within the next uh, six to nine months, we hope. And certainly, we'd love to have you back in 12 months to discuss those next uh, articles. <laughs> I um, just want to use that as a segue for all of our listeners doing research that ultimately, I think that's where we have the ability to make change. If you look at the published NCCN guidelines right now, um, they were essentially updated at the end of 2018 for both basal cell and squamous cell, as well as for melanoma. But it's striking that on the melanoma panel, you currently have representation from uh, what looks like only two dermatologists, whereas on that for non-melanoma skin cancer, there are 13 dermatologists. So I think that's just an inspiration or an encouragement for us to continue to publish the high quality care that we're providing, uh, because ultimately these are evidence-based guidelines. And the more evidence we as dermatologists and as dermatologic surgeons and most surgeons provide, uh, the more it will affect the um, writing of guidelines. I agree, Thomas, that increased representation of dermatology on the NCCN Melanoma Guidelines Committee is essential. It's essential because 80% of melanomas do not require the staging and systemic therapies of our medical and surgical oncologists. So 80% of melanomas are in the realm of dermatologic treatment alone. And that underrepresentation may impact the way that these lower risk melanomas are handled. Completely agree. And certainly we've been uh, sort of catching up because there's been a huge amount of data on the conventional treatment of melanoma and the treatment of more advanced stage melanoma. But uh, I think it's uh, people like you who are continuing that process for uh, most surgery as well as for staged excisions. So I really appreciate uh, taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you, Thomas. I want to thank all of our listeners for their attention. 
Uh, as always, the articles that were discussed today will be included in the Mose College Reference Library, which is accessible through the Mose College website. Uh, to all of our listeners, please share this podcast with your colleagues and your trainees. Let us know how we are doing, who you'd like to have on the show by contacting us at info at Thank you, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mose Surgery.